All right. So thanks for coming back. See, Kevin, you brought them. You, you didn't run them all off. And it wasn't just, wasn't just three people and one being my wife. And so it's just, you know, it gets a little awkward at that point in time. But, but uh, yeah, man, tonight we're talking about thinking and speaking clearly. As we get, you know, obviously it's important that we engage the gospel or we engage the culture wherever we're at. But man, if we don't do it in clear way, and we think about it in the right way. Uh, you know, I always equate it to, I had a young lady, um, she was from Russia, and she worked for me in the bookstore, and, and you know, obviously she could speak Russian, and she, I said, just share the gospel in Russian. And so she went, and she just did it. And I'm like, okay. She goes, what'd you think? And I said, well, I don't speak Russian, so you could have said anything you wanted to say, and I really wouldn't know, but, but that's, that would be the same effect that she would just come and share the gospel and expect somebody to really know and understand that. And, and of course, they wouldn't unless you just knew the language. And so it's important that, um, certainly in our culture today, where, man, words can mean anything or they can mean nothing, right? And so it's important that if we want to uh, share the gospel well, if we want to engage the culture well, we need to think well about our spheres of influence and where we're living our lives out, but we also need to speak clearly. And so that's the whole thing for tonight. A lot of it is, um, it'll be logic, there'll be philosophy, or not philosophy, but there's reasoning, there's logic in it. Um, and so some of it can get kind of, I don't know, stiff, if you will. We'll try to lighten that up a little bit as we go along. But again, we're thinking and, and speaking clearly, and this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. And so, but I want to have a reminder before we kind of get into the logic and the reason of all of this is that we need to always go back to God's character. And truth is rooted in God's character. Right? Because the danger is, is right, we'll take a point back so far and we'll stop. And we'll think we fleshed that idea out to its fullest extent until we get back to God's character to see if that idea aligns with God's character. We haven't fleshed it out all the way. And so we just always need to remember truth is rooted in God's character, right? Isaiah 65, 16 says, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth and he will swear in the earth and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. And then John 3.33, uh, he who has received his testimony has set his seal uh, to this, that God is true. And then 1 John 5.20 uh, talks about, um, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and the eternal life. And again, truth is always rooted in God's character. And because God exists, right, we know that there's an absolute objective truth that will exist. Again, we just struggle with that in our culture. We struggle with expressing those ideas but we can have confidence whether I can express that well or not. Truth exists because God exists. Because God doesn't just speak truth. God is truth. And again, what I wanted to start here is because it's important that we, we don't rely on logic and reason more than God's character. And that really becomes the danger is, is we can take this idea of logic of reason of wittiness or whatever it is and we can let that be the tool by which we carry forth truth 
man, it's always going to be God's character. And that's where we must go. That's where we must rely as we go to engage the culture. That will be the unchanging foundation that we will have all of our conversations on, that we will live out our faith in, will be God's character. So why even think well? Right? Why even think well? Again, I teach some students on Wednesday morning, homeschool students, and they're always encouraged by me because the first, the first day of class, the first month of class, the first year of class, right? It's just, I know you're the best and the brightest that's out there. I got that, and, and that's good, and thank you for being in this class, but you really don't know how to think. I mean, you can put a right answer down on a test, but you don't know how to think. This class is going to teach you how to think. Right. And they're just encouraged and uplifted by it. No, please, Mr. Rick, thanks more, more, more. Right. And so. But we really need to learn how to think. And let me tell you what, one of the greatest downfalls to us thinking well. Is this. Man, Instagram, TikTok, right. 168 characters, whatever it is, man, that is one of the greatest downfalls to us not thinking well as people that's not thinking well as people is, is the iPhone and everything, the ease of knowledge that's at our fingertips. Uh, that's not in your notes. But anyway, truth is understood in two ways. Okay, we can understand truth with our minds, and then we're going to see here in a minute we can understand truth with our hearts. But we're starting out with we understand truth in two ways, and one is with our minds. Romans 12, 2, it says, and, uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good. And acceptable and perfect, right? That our minds be renewed as we come into God's presence, as we come into His Word, as we share and grow. Our minds are to be renewed in this. Ephesians four twenty three says, "Be renewed in the spirit of your mind." Romans eight five says, "Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit." And again. Mind, 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 right? And we know one of the greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? We are thinking beings. And then the second thing is with our hearts. We know truth with our mind, and we know truth with our hearts. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, uh, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And then Jeremiah 31, 33, uh, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. You know, God created us with a heart. God created us with a mind, and he expects us to use those in harmony. Is where we get into danger is, is that, oh, I think more with my mind, right? And so I get into the intellectual aspects, and I leave the heart issues out, right? And I leave the heart issues out. And what happens is, is I can speak the truth. It just doesn't often come out with love because I've left the heart. You know, I've checked that at the door. Or the other end of that is, is, man, I'm all about my heart where my feels are at, right? And so I'm led by my feelings, and we leave the intellectual, the evidential part of, out of the thinking, and so either one's going to lead us astray. 
man, God created us with a heart. He created us with a mind, and he expects us to use them in harmony, that they work together. Because whenever we begin to separate what God designed to work together, it's going to lead us into issues. It's going to lead us into issues, and it'll lead us certainly away from his word, the truth of his word and his character. We good? Questions? So we know truth with our hearts, and we know truth with our minds. And so here's the great thing is truth can be tested. <clears throat> truth can be tested. Um, and we're going to go through these four truth tests. And this is really, I mean, it comes from a worldview perspective that you can test all worldviews by these tests, but you can test all truth by these tests. And the, th you know, the thing is, it's like my first thought was, well, if it can't be tested, it's not true. Which that's, not, that's a false statement, actually. That really is a false statement. But that's what atheists would say. Well, you know what? I don't believe in God because you can't, you can't test for God. And usually my comment is as well, do, can you test for love? Can you test for hate? Can you test for... The, well, no. So those things don't exist. Well, no, they do exist. So just because we can't test for something doesn't mean that it's not true. But these four tests will help us walk through those ideas. Okay. So there's four tests. The first one is the test of reason. And the test of reason asks, is, is it reasonable? Can it be logically stated and defended? And so here's an easy example. I'm, I'm going to give you an example, and then we're going to apply each one of these tests to that example. Okay? And it's going to be an easy one, but I want you to work through the test. All right? And the statement is that we're going to test is men can get pregnant. Right, if you're ever watching what was going on Capitol Hill, you know, probably a year or so ago, and you have all of the bright and the best from our academic institutions across the land, and, and they're sitting there saying, oh, men can get pregnant. And my first thought was, man, what school is this professor at? Because I want to make sure my kids don't go there. Right? But men can get pregnant. And so here's what we want to say. Is that statement, let's test it with the test of reason, is that a reasonable statement that we know of? Okay. Okay, no. If you're not sure, step into the middle of the room. No. Oh, that's another, that's another story altogether. Can it be logically stated or defended? And you can't. You can't defend that statement with reason. You can't defend that statement with logic. Okay? So it... Men can get pregnant, fails the first test, okay? The second test is, it's called the test of the outer world. And this is where there's some external or corroborating evidence to support it. You know, I had an Uncle Billy, and he got pregnant, and he had a baby girl. Now, if that really happened, and I had that evidence, that could corroborate that statement that men can get pregnant, but I don't have an Uncle Billy and if I did, he couldn't have a little baby. Not where he's birthing the baby, right? Not where he's birthing the baby. And so it's going to fail this test. fails the test of reason, and it fails the test of the outer world. The next is the test of the inner world, right? Does it adequately address the everyday relationships, crisis, victories, blessings, and disappointments we experience in our world? Now, this one, I'm, like, I'm not sure, can we really apply this to that statement, men can get pregnant? Maybe, maybe not. We might be able to come up with something where we could, we might, you know, we might be able to walk through it and say, okay, you've got a, a man and a woman, right? And they want to have a baby, right? And so they kind of go through the sexual act. They don't look at each other and go, well, which one of us is going to get pregnant? 
They don't ask that question. Right? Because it's not an option. Well, it could be you or it could be me. Because men can't get pregnant. Maybe that might work for the test of the inner world. And then the last one is the test of the real world. Are its consequences good or bad when applied in any given cultural context? Is it good or bad applied in any given cultural context? Here's, here's what I know. I used to say if men, could, if men could birth babies, there would be one child per family. But I'm a little smarter than your average guy. So once I saw what Kevin had to go through to have a baby, he'd be like, we don't need any kids. We ain't having none. Right? It's just not going to happen. <laughs> and when we talk about these ideas and we say, you know, are the consequences good or bad when we apply it? Here's an example I brought up with our students this morning when we look at China. And back in the early 70s, they developed a one uh, child per family I say policy, but it was really a, it was a law is what it was. And so China thought that was really a good idea. But now China has changed their law, and I think it's either two. I know it's two for sure. It could be three now that you can have two or three children per family because, man, their, their demographics, their population demographics have just imploded. It's just imploded because of only one child per family. But when we don't think those things out well, and again, we were walking our students through this this morning, when we don't walk that out well, because now what happens is, is you're pregnant and you find out that your baby's a little girl. Well, well boys are more honored in the Chinese culture than girls are. So I only get one child they would abort the little girl, but they would give birth to a little boy. And they're thinking, wow, that's, that's good. Well, first you're taking the life, so it's not good. But now we've moved, right? So this is the 70s. We're 50 years down the road. And it's like, man, China is just, if I can say this, overpopulated with men and underpopulated with women. Right? And so now it's like, well, we want you to have two or three children. Like, there's not even any women to marry because we aborted them all. Right? And so the test of the real world. And so that could be another example that we could walk through these four tests. Man, that idea fails on all accounts. It fails on all accounts of these tests of the real world. And so if you're not scoring on these tests, you know what? That's probably not an idea that we need to be supporting or thinking about, or even pretending that it's a good idea. These four tests will reveal the truth of an idea. They'll reveal the truth of a worldview. And so it's, it's a good habit to get these, keep these around, and just walk through these with ideas, because as we're engaging the culture, right, and somebody brings up an idea, well, let's run it through these four tests. And we can walk people through that. So do you think that's a good idea? And sometimes if we can come to the conclusion on our own, we'll, we'll readily accept that as opposed to me just telling you, you know, that's the dumbest idea I've heard since the last idea that I had, right? And so we want to apply these tests to an idea to see if it's true or not. Questions? Kevin? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that taking the roof off on the tactics, it's, it's the same thing. It's just probably a little really easier thing to use than this here. Um, but yeah, you, you just want to be able to walk through those ideas and think about them logically. You know, it's not a good idea just because Rick says it's a good idea. We need to apply these tests. We need to take the roof off of that to see, okay, because if, for it to be a good idea, it's got to be a good idea today and in 10 years and in 50 years, it's still got to be a good idea. Because if it fails at any point in time, it's not a good idea. Because anything less than that, it becomes just pragmatism. Well, it'll work for today, so that's good enough. Right? I think we know that today doesn't last but 24 hours, and we still got to live with the consequences tomorrow. Okay. Again, these four tests assume that we can think clearly not only about the world around us, but also our spiritual truth. And again, it can, it can be applied to just about any idea. So, I'm going to talk about the art of reasoning. Okay, now we're kind of getting into the logic and the, the stuff. And Paul reasoned. The Apostle Paul, he reasoned, and he reasoned a lot. All right, and this is just in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you got all these times, right? The Apostle Paul reasoned, or he was reasoning with his audience. Right? Acts 9.29, Paul's arguing with his opponents. Now, that argue is not, you know, kind of like what you see on the, the, you know, the ladies on the view, and they're just kind of going back and forth and that kind of stuff. And it's not that argument, right? It's presenting a sound argument. That's what it's referring to. Um, Acts 17.3, the apostles explaining and giving evidence. Um, Acts 19.8, Paul's persuading. 19.26, his opponents admit that Paul has persuaded. Acts 28.23, um, the apostle is explaining and attempting to persuade. Reasoning is a biblical concept. And again, you know, you may, all you got to do is proclaim the gospel. That's all you got to do. And that's good. It's not bad, but it's not all that you've got to do. Again, it would just be like me bringing my friend up here and she shares the gospel with you in Russian. And it's like, okay, we shared the gospel with 30 people. None of them got saved, though, but that's, that's blood on their hands. Well, no, you don't know what she said. We have to explain that out. And we, Paul in Athens, he was in a Greek culture. Man, he is reasoning back to the Scriptures. He's reasoning back to the gospel. That's the world that we live in. We don't live in Jerusalem. We don't live in Jerusalem. We live in Babylon. And we have to bring all of the abilities and the truths and the skill sets that God has given us to extend his kingdom wherever we're at. Paul reasoned. He used rhetorical skills um, to reason people to the gospel. The faith we're called to is not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith built on evidence. Right? We believe because of the evidence of the gospel. Right? If you doubt, the answer to doubt is not believe harder, right? It's to go find answers to your doubts. God's big enough to handle our doubts. God's big enough to handle our questions. Our faith or trust, it's evidence. It's in evidence. And then art of reason continued. So art of reason involves clear definitions of words. The clear definitions of words. 
right? To communicate well, we must clearly define our words and terms. You know, if we were 30, 40 years ago, we might think that this is really not a big deal. It's a big deal today. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. We have to define our terms. If we want the gospel to be clearly presented, if we want to engage the culture, if we want to influence the culture, we need to explain our ideas well. We need to define our terms correctly. A properly used word is a well-defined word. It's a well-defined word. So to me, the obvious question is, is what, what's a well-defined word? What does that even mean? Right, so I found this definition. It's when a rational person who is not otherwise influenced by prior commitments may understand what is being said. Right? So I can sit here and I can talk to this group and I can say, you know what, I just had some surgery, had a pacemaker put in, but and I got good health care. I got good health care. And I think we I think hopefully we would all be, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. Right? But if we go out into the world and we start talking about health care, what else does health care mean in a fallen world? Abortion. That's right. Health care is just another code name for, oh, that's abortion. So we have to define those terms as we use them out in a world that we're trying to engage with the gospel of Christ. Well-defined words, well-defined terms. All right, do a little bit of table time. Here's the phrase. It's, I believe in Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to discuss what does that mean to you. Hopefully, that should be pretty quick, okay? But then, I want you to ask, what might that term mean to somebody else? What, it, what might it mean to a person of another faith? What might it mean to an atheist? I believe in Jesus. Okay, are we clear what I'm... We have to talk about that amongst yourselves. All right. So, we have got, I believe in Jesus. What would be the biblical, you know, the, the Sunday school answer, I believe in Jesus? What does that mean? Life group, I'm sorry. What would be the life group answer? That, that, that it would <laughs> What's that? Because it's true? Because the Bible says it's true? <laughs> okay, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Biblically. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's a lot of different ways that we could say that from the biblical answer. So what might be some other responses that you would get, I believe in Jesus? Huh? Oh, you go to church. Okay. Yeah, I, I go to church. Okay. You want to? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that before. Um, and not just from my wife. It's okay. Um, Kelly, were you going to say something? Okay, yeah, so which they're saying, I don't believe that he's God or that he's the only way to heaven. He's a good man, a good teacher, 
progressive Christianity will say, oh, he's a wise sage. Um, Huh? A prophet. He's a prophet. If you go into Islam, uh, Jesus is a prophet. Okay. All right. Right for Mormons. Yeah, he's he's the spirit brother of Satan, but he's they would say that he's the only way to heaven. I mean, there was I mean, if you just don't know something about Mormon theology, you could walk away thinking, "Wow, we're Christian. We're, we're all, we believe the same thing." But they don't. They believe he was a man that was created that lived such a good life that he became a god. And so you can see when we just say, "I believe in Jesus." You know, we really need, in our culture today, we need to bring more clarity to that. And, and this just kind of came up to me again. It was whenever I was, I was in the hospital and uh, the, the anesthesiologist comes in and, you know, they're just making chit-chat and I hope they're not charging me for that by the word. But anyway, so they're just talking and they do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and... Um, he said, hey, what did you do this weekend? And so I said, you know, I was, I was at a couple churches, and I was just speaking with some parents about when your child doubts the faith. And, oh, man, I need to, to be talking to you. And I said, well, you know, we can talk. And, oh, man, you know, I was just telling my son that I said, hey, I know who Jesus is to me, but you got to figure out who Jesus is to you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> we need, huh, what's that? Well, I was, I was willing to talk then. I just said, but either we need to before you put that happy juice in me, or at least a week or two later, you can come and see me at the bookstore and we'll have that conversation. You know, and, and that's his thing. Ah, well, you know, I know who my Jesus is. You've got to figure out who he is to you. We really need to bring clarity to this. So how would you bring clarity to this phrase? What would you do besides, one, we've got to add more words. But what would you change that phrase to to bring more clarity to that phrase? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We would just bring some ideas, some biblical ideas. Jesus, you could add Christ, right? His title. Most people think it's his last name, but it's his title, Messiah. Something, but you got, but again, this, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus too. So we give each other hugs and we, and we go away. We just think, oh, okay, that was good. Well, they just don't believe in the Jesus that you believe into. So it's important that we bring clarity into the conversations. We need to, we need to define those things. Okay, questions on that? All right, so we're going to move on, right? Don't define a word or a term in a way that would prematurely persuade someone to your view. Man, if you're a good wordsmith and you can turn around and you know how to use words and you know how to use the tone and the inflection and, and you can persuade somebody to your view just by how you say something or the words that you use. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that, right? Um, we don't want to use sketchy definitions to persuade somebody. Again, we want to speak with clarity, clarity and conciseness. Right? And so here's just some examples. Right? Jesus loves you just as you are. True statement, almost true statement, false statement. <laughs> Says the person who read the tactics book, right? Yeah, Jesus loves you. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, Kelly's just going to kick the hornet's nest right away. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's right. Let's get to it. Okay, so we got that. Jesus gets you. That's, oh, that's one of my favorite ones right there. Jesus, if you, if you were here last, never mind, never mind. Uh, Jesus affirms a monogamous marriage, does he? Yeah. And I think we could, we could walk away thinking, yeah. Jesus does do that. What's the problem with that? What's that? Definition, right? How do you define marriage? Right? Because literally the thing going on right now within the LGBTQ community that claim to be Christians is, hey, look, if you're in a homosexual, a monogamous homosexual marriage, that is God honoring is what they would say. And you're like, okay, we need to probably bring a little more clarity into our terms here. What Jesus affirmed was one man, one woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage. And again, so it's terms like that that we really want to, man, they're just loaded with definition. Those need to be fleshed out. Those terms need to be fleshed out. Or this one here, rich people aren't paying their fair share. Right? Even when we just look at this, man, it evokes a feeling of resentment, unless you're one of the rich people, right? Well, and again, that's, that's certainly one of the things we get in there. What's rich? What's fair share? Who gets to decide those things, right? And so we've got to, I mean, just a statement like that is just amazing what that means to somebody, but it may not mean to somebody else. And so we go back to the first question, what do you mean by that? From tactics. So when you say fair share, what does that mean? Or rich, what does that mean? We need to speak with clarity. We need to find our terms. To reason well, we must define words as clearly as possible in a way that makes our meanings plain and rise above our claims of bias and manipulation. Let me just, look, everybody is biased towards something. Everybody. You, me, the atheist, the agnostic, the Jew and Hamas, they're all, we're all biased towards something. You know, whatever our worldview is, that's what we're biased towards. And so when somebody accuses you of being biased, don't be offended by that, Right? Usually my response is, it's not, you know, the issue is not whether we're biased or not, we're all biased. The issue is, is, is one of us biased towards the truth? Because we want to bring it to truth. Everything else gets subjective and we can, it can mean whatever we want. But now once we start to deal with the truth, that's what we want to be biased towards. We want to be biased towards the truth. So the art of reasoning. A question so far? Sarah?
Yeah, and yeah, and I think that would be the the manipulation part. I think that's that last part. I think that's where the manipulation would come in. And again, I, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, you want people to be persuaded to something that's true. Um, but you know, I can think of things that I've been persuaded for in my, towards in my younger years that I regret now. Um, or maybe that was just my sinful nature that was leading me in that. But um, we certainly want to, persuasion is a good thing. Manipulation is not as we get into that. So that's a great point. Thanks, Sarah. So the art of reasoning, it involves critical thinking. The art of reasoning involves critical thinking. Right? Critical thinking is the process of analyzing and evaluating arguments for validity and soundness. Is that a problem today that people lack critical thinking? What evidence would you give for that? Okay. Okay. Ad hominem attacks, which we're going to look at that in a little bit, right? Man, you know what? When you, <laughs> when you have got, hey, we, you know what? We need a czar of fact-checking or falsified information. You know, that there's just so much fake news out there. And you know one reason why there's so much fake news? It's because people believe it. We lack critical thinking skills, and we believe those things. You know, and, and it happens every once in a while on social media, right? It's just eaten up with that. And so you're like, what do you believe? You know, so I, I love Christmas. I'm like year-round Christmas type of guy, right? And so I get these pictures, these Christmas pictures in my feed, and I'm like, you know what? That just, I don't even look right. That picture doesn't even look like a picture. And so I spent, you know what? What's a picture look like that's made with chat GPT? How can you tell? And so I just started researching that. And there's some things that you can do to tell if the photograph or something's just this AI generated. And we need to do that. That's critical thinking. We need to do that with important things of the world, with ideas, with things that are presented out there. Okay? Have you ever... Have you ever looked at somebody, and I, I'm just, this is a rhetorical question because I know none of you have ever done this, but I'm going to go ahead and just humor me, okay? Have you ever just looked at somebody and said, how can they believe that, <laughs> right? Or how do, they, how do they even act like that? Have you ever wondered that, or am I the only one in the room? Yeah, Don, thanks for being honest. Okay, we got a few honest people around here, and, and then I'm, I'm wondering about your integrity now. But no, you know what? Typically, that comes from either your worldview and or a lack of critical thinking skills on that person's part. That we just don't think through that. I mean, you've got this college professor from Stanford University that's saying men can get pregnant. I think that's a pretty good example that you lack critical thinking skills. That you're in an ideology overdose and you're, and you're teaching somebody's kids. We need to be critical thinkers. Okay. Yes? Well, no, I was sharing. I, I, I teach high, uh, middle school and high school, but one of my own daughters said, Mama, my teacher, teacher saying that uh, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to say that's that's wrong. I was like, you should not. You can you can you can say it at that point. Sometimes it's wrong because it doesn't matter if it's believe it or not. But that's wrong. You know, we're saying that uh, we have transgender people. Uh huh. You know. Well, the encouraging thing is she she realized that. I mean, right at fourteen, she's like, I can't. I know. That something's wrong about that. And how many times have you done that where you're like, Some, I don't know what it is, but something's not right there. Yeah. And we don't say it. Yeah, and we don't say anything, and we may not explore it anymore. But, man, you know, one, that's the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us that will lead us into all truth or lead us away from lies. But the critical thinking then becomes in, what is wrong with that statement? You know, what is wrong with that statement, right? That's the difference between sex is assigned at birth and sex is discovered at birth, right? And so we, we, man, the art of reasoning involves critical thinking, okay? Critical thinking describes the kind of thinking that enables people to cut through ambiguity to make the meaning clear. You can cut through the weeds and you can get to the core of the issue. And normally what happens is, is when we're practicing and we're developing these skills, you know, we don't think about it until after we've left the conversation. And that's okay. You know, that's how we get, that's how we get better at it, of identifying these things. And where we say, oh, you know, I wish I would have said, or that's what they meant, and I could have said this, right? It, we talk, it's debriefing. You know, we, we debrief a conversation and, and so the more you debrief and you talk about it, the next time it becomes real for you, you begin to start adding these things into the conversations. Critical thinking. It takes practice. It takes practice. I'll wait on that. Um, so eight characteristics of good critical thinking. Okay? And you have that. You have clarity, right? And that's to make one's meaning as plain as possible. You have preci- precision to make important distinctions in a way that sets alternatives. Uh, sets apart alternatives, accuracy to present exact information, relevance to state the premise and conclusion simply on topic and without unwarranted assumptions, consistency to avoid contradiction in thought and actions, completeness to make arguments that are not superficially stated or ignorant of opposing points of view, fairness to be as impartial as possible and open about biases. Eight is courage to maintain a humble yet charitable attitude. Man, I'm just telling you, that is going to be the one virtue that we will need, we will need to raise our children with, is courage. As the years come and go, we will need courage to speak the truth in the cultures that we're in. Okay? So some good arguments. They involve these, these are questions that you should ask yourself about arguments that you're presenting, your reasoning, your logic that you're presenting out there. This is what you want to ask yourself, right? Is the premise true? In other words, is my starting point true? Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's my premise, right? And then my points after that need to support that idea, to give evidence for that. But if that's, is that a true premise? Again, you can have a good, solid argument, but it be false, 
right? Because an argument is just how it's stated, you know, is it a syllogism? It's three parts. And, um, and so it could be a false premise, but you could still have a good argument. But we're not after really a good argument. We're after truth. That's what we're after, persuading people to the truth. Um, does the reasoning correctly lead to the conclusion? Right? Because I have a pink cat and a purple cow, my dog's going to be green. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's, that's not reasoning correctly to a conclusion. Um, are the reasons relevant to the conclusion? Are they relevant to the conclusion? Have I committed any logical fallacies? And we're going to get into some of those here in just a little bit. Is the argument complete and fair? And those are questions that we should ask about our logic, our reasoning, our arguments. And it kind of keeps us in line. So good arguments can also be used to expand, expose bad arguments by showing right, these things. The premises are false. Uh, the reasons don't sufficiently lead to the conclusion drawn. The reasons aren't relevant to the conclusion. The conclusion is reached through a logical error. The argument is complete or fair. Is when we learn to present good arguments, it will expose bad arguments. When we use good reasoning and good logic, it will expose bad reasoning and bad logic. But we need to learn those skills. And again, it's, it just takes practice. And again, you may know something's wrong, but you're just not sure, how do I address that? Okay, hey, let me think about that. And we can get back together and talk again. And then you can formulate that right in your mind and talk with other people and work through that. And then, hey, I thought about it. And then you can bring it back up and it furthers the discussion. Okay? Questions? All right, bad arguments. Bad, bad arguments often involve fallacies or something that is false. Right? A fallacy, it's a mistake that makes arguments invalid, unsound, weak, or ineffective. Logical fallacies are deceptive or false arguments that may seem stronger than they actually are due to psychological persuasion but are proven wrong with reasoning and further examination. Here it is, yeah. This book, The Fallacy Detective, I think it's for middle schoolers, is that right? This is the best book. One, it's simple, it's got lots of pictures, so it's great. But man, it walks you through logic, reasoning, fallacies. This is awesome. It is sold at the bookstore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank. Nice job. <laughs> nice feed on that right there. Yeah, but it's 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 a great book. Like I said, you know, I'll pick it up. Everyone. Well, we just had to order that because we couldn't find our copy. But it's just time to I'll pick it up and just, and just read through it. And yeah, it is. Yes, yeah, it would be. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to read. It's, again, it gives you tests and questions that you can walk through. Um, it, it's worth it. And especially if you want your kids to be able to do this, it's worth it. Now, if you've got younger kids, if you can get them into debate, that, that's an incredible thing. I mean, some of the students that I have taught that have been in debate, man, they are awesome. They learn all of this stuff. But if you're not into debating, then uh, get the book. Okay, we want to avoid manipulation. Kind of Sarah was just talking about that in her communications class. We want to avoid manipulation. 
right? Manipulation is not a tactic that would be honoring to Christ, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? He would not manipulate people, and neither should we. Neither should we, right? Avoiding manipulation can make you more persuasive because people are more likely to agree if they know you truly love them and you want God's best for them. Hey, look, I'm not trying to win an argument. And, and again, that's unfortunate when we get into this. It's just, I'm just trying to be proven right. That is the stop. That's, that's not the attitude that we want to proceed with. That's not Christ honoring. That's not going to get somebody to the gospel. We want to avoid that manipulation to set them up for traps. And, um, and I, can, I can be good at that. And I, I, I try to avoid it because... I know their worldview. I know the weaknesses of their worldview. I can cut to that pretty quick. But again, I don't want to manipulate to get them there. So some common fallacies. These are the ad hominem attacks. What time? Oh, we've got a few minutes. Um, man, I, don't, I can't even tell you how many different fallacies. I mean, there's, there was 30 or 40 of them I was trying to work through. I just grabbed some of the most common ones and, and put them on here. An ad hominem attack is, it's a fallacy occurs when somebody attacks you personally rather than using logic to refute their argument. Hey, I think Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yeah, that's because you're one of those nutters that sit there and go to church all the time. Okay, that may be true, but that really doesn't respond to what I just said. Right? And so they just attack you personally, your character instead of dealing with the statement that you just made or your premise, if you want to say that, um, an ad hominem attack. Um, and usually, I prefer, if that's one of their first things for me, it's just, hey, you're just a bald-headed jerk. Again, that may be true, but the first thing that tells me is you've got zero argument to bring to the table. You've got zero logic, zero reason to bring because you're just attacking me personally. And that puts me in a sweet spot because I know they've got nothing. Does that happen to you often? <laughs> <laughs> just certain, certain family members may bring stuff up. Just some family members. I'm not saying who. I'm not even saying they're in the room. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know, typically it doesn't happen with me a lot. I mean, there's been some times when people have just attacked me personally because of that, because I'm just a, a right-wing fundamentalist. Um, but that usually happens when they get frustrated in the point of the argument and they really don't have anywhere else to go and they're wanting to get out of the conversation. Well, you're just a right-wing fundamentalist. But that doesn't answer my point. That may be true, it may not be true, but that's really not what's on the table right now. And again, you just, don't, you just don't want to take it personal. You just don't want to take it personal. And again, it's easy for me to say, right? It's easy for me to say. I know it's harder for other people. But just know that, man, when they, when they drop this on you, it's because they have nothing else to bring to the table. And if you just, man, if you just ever watch some of the politicians, when they, how often some politicians will use this. And I'm like, wow, they're making decisions for the country, and that's, that's, what, they, that's what they're bringing to the table. Lord, help us, right? All right, so instead, they'll attack physical appearance, personal traits, or other irrelevant characteristics to criticize the other's point of view. These attacks can also be leveled at institutions or groups, right? And again, you'll hear professors and stuff say, oh, well, you're, you're a Christian. 
or you go to, oh, don't you go to Bellevue Baptist Church? Hmm, okay. I'm like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Right? It's just a form of an ad hominem attack. Some examples, right? Barbara, we should review these data sets again uh, just to be sure they're accurate. And Tim says, I figured you'd suggest that since you're a bit slow when it comes to math. Ad hominem attack. Okay? Attacking the motive, right? Saying that the person's vested interests are what makes his or her arguments wrong. Oh, well, you're a Christian. Or you're anti science. Right? And so it's because of the institution, what you're interested in, that automatically makes your argument wrong. Again, it's, that doesn't answer the premise. That doesn't answer the reasoning. And again, it's just, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that really doesn't, again, that doesn't deal with what we have on the table here. And we always want to bring it back to that point. Because I've been in a lot of conversations where, man, we ended up down in about 15 different rabbit holes. And then it was like, uh, hey, do you remember what we were talking about at the beginning? Right? You, just, you get confused about where you even started. And so it's just stay on point. What's the point you made? Let's stay there until it's either resolved, they agree, or they agree to disagree. And that's okay. And that's okay. Um, right? Ted has argued that there's almost a total lack of transitional life forms in support of biological evolution. But, of course, he believes that because he's a creationist. Again, they're just attacking the motive. He believes that because he's a creationist. Well, as an evolutionist, we should still be looking for transitional life forms. Being a creationist does not make the argument false. Scare tactics. A person is threatened physically or otherwise if they don't accept the arguer's conclusions. Hey, you should take my advice. After all, I'm a big financial supporter of your ministry. Now, that's not bailed, right? If you don't affirm our beliefs, we'll just cut off all contact between you and us, which means you won't be able to see your grandkids, right? Scare tactics. Appeal to pity or emotion. You know, I can't, whenever I see this one here, have you ever seen, I think it's the, um, what is it, the USPCA, you know, the animal thing, and they had the little commercials, and you see the little puppy on there, and oh, you know, you just, you just want to give them $1,000 to help them. You know, that stuff works. <laughs> Not on me, but it works. Right? It's a fallacy that relies on emotions such as pity or sympathy to persuade people to accept an argument or a conclusion. You know, we'll just, we'll just go ahead and let's do a modern day event on this thing, right? You've got Israel and Hamas, right? And so initially it comes out and everybody's kind of in support of Israel, but now, you know, the tables will turn and they'll say, well, you know, there's innocent people. In Palestine. And it's that emotional appeal. Is that true that there's innocent people in Palestine? Yes, that's true. Should we pray for them? Absolutely, we should pray for them. Is that Israel's fault? It is not. That's laid at the leadership of Palestine. That's not Israel's fault. But we want to use that emotional ploy to say, oh, 
we really need to do this. Well, is that the best thing to do or is that just the emotional drawstrings that we're trying to have? Okay? Um, let me just go. Again, we got lots of examples. Appeal to pity. Right? Don't buy that product. It's bad because the company made, uh, laid my friend off. We're going to go through some of these other ones. This is a bandwagon states that you should accept a presented claim because it's popular or what's really, what's kind con- you know, I'm going to be on the right side of history. One, how do you know you're going to be on the right side of history? Because that's, you got to get past it before you know that. But the other thing is I'm not really interested in being on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. I'm interested in being on the right side of truth. That's where I want to be. Because history it's written by the victors, right? It's, unless until you get to this, never mind, um, right? Ninety-eight. Here's an example. Ninety-eight percent of the scientists say climate emergency is caused by humans, and because ninety-eight percent say that, you should you should agree with that. Straw man fallacy. Argue the arguer distorts the opponent's position to make it easier to attack. There's no way I could believe in a God that hates hates my gay friends and. Wants to send them all to hell. Well, that's good because that's not the kind of God that's in the Bible, right? They're just setting up this idea that doesn't exist to make their argument, to strengthen their argument. And we just want to be able to recognize the straw man fallacy. That happens a lot. And there's another example, red herrings. This, oh my gosh, this is, this is a big one. Uh, the arguer tries to sidetrack the discussion by raising an irrelevant issue and then claiming that the original matter has been settled by diversion. Man, this is probably the number one. When I get into discussions with agnostics or atheists, we're, they bring up a point. I start discussing the point. I'm bringing evidence against it or for my point. And then it's like, what? you know what? There's the age of the earth. Nobody believes it's 6,000 years old. We weren't talking about that. Right? That's a red herring they're throwing out there. And it's like, that's, that wasn't the point of our discussion. We were talking about this. And so again, I'm always working to bring them back to where we started our discussion. If it happens again, usually what I'll do is I call it what it is. You know, that's a red herring, and we probably really should stop that if we want this conversation to really be of any value and worth. You're just throwing out this, this idea because it's either you're not liking where the conclusion is going or you don't have a response for it, so let me just throw something else. And that's what can get you just on a dozen different rabbit trails, the red herring. And there's an example. There's a false dilemma. Uh, you see, anyway, this is with Hume. Epicurus, he did this. He said the argument poses a false uh, either or. In other words, if God knows about suffering and he cares about suffering, and can do something about suffering, then he shouldn't, then there shouldn't be any suffering. But because there's suffering, there is no God. That's kind of where the Epicurus's argument, Hume uses that also. And you'll hear college professors use that. Well, there's really, they only give it, it's either this or it's that. There's, there's really a third option, and that is one, we bring suffering upon ourselves. That could be an option. Or two, good can come through suffering, right? And as Christians, we know that in Romans 8 28, right? God causes all things to work to good for those that love him, right? And so as much as we hate it, good, God can bring good through suffering. So that's the false dilemma fallacy. Um, Begging the question is circular reasoning or circular reasoning. Uh, I'm just going through this because we're running out of time. 
inappropriate appeal to authority, and these are just some other ones. Um, false cause, hasty generalization, slippery slope, weak analogy, and they just go on and on and on and on and on. There's just tons of logical fallacies that are out there. Again, I think it's beneficial to learn what some of the most common ones are that you're going to face. At least learn those. At least learn those. Questions? All right, building trust and credibility, and we are getting to the end, right? It's to persuade others to reach truthful conclusions requires trust and credibility as well as clear definitions and logical arguments. That's what we've been talking up to this point in time, right? Persuasion versus manipulation, right? Persuasion involves arranging ethical arguments to enlighten an audience to the truth. You're just trying to persuade them, and that's what Paul's doing. Right? Manipulation involves arranging manipulation involves arranging unethical arguments to deceive an audience and keep people from seeing the truth. Okay? True persuasion isn't just getting people to do what you want, it's getting people to what's right. Right? Persuasion, you want to think debates or discussions, arguments, but not yelling and screaming. It's just presenting your, your evidence. But we certainly don't want to manipulate people that we can get them to Christ because you're really not getting them to Christ at that point in time. Is persuasion biblical? Boom. And again, it's just all of these. We see persuasion is used in the Bible. Paul used it. Peter used it. Persuasion. It's a dialogue. It's real. God calls us to that. Persuasion, God's way, right? And what you're saying true to, and again, these are some points that you want to talk about, is what you're saying is it true to the best of your knowledge? To the best of your knowledge. Does your message encourage an emotionally healthy response? Are you seeking the good of others? Are you treating others as you would wish to be treated? Are you appealing to righteous motives? Are you leading others to a better to better obey God? Right? And then we get propaganda operates by isolating people from the truth. And so you got manipulation, right? They're just trying to insert something other than the truth. Propaganda operates, they want to isolate you from the truth. See, and this is this idea, literally what you get is with the whole cancel culture thing is you're not even allowed to speak that here. You're not even allowed to speak that here. You're not allowed to have an opposing idea, an opposing argument. You'll be canceled, you'll be fired, you'll be whatever the case may be. You're going to be, you're not allowed to speak that. Because a lie can persist if the truth is shut out. But a lie will never persist in the face of the truth. Right? When the truth is spoken, it drags a lie out into the light. And that's why propaganda doesn't want truth to be spoken. They allow no other idea to enter the discussion. Propaganda. It ceases. This guy's Jacques Lou. He said, propaganda ceases where simple dialogue begins. Man, if we can just have a discussion... You know, we can move the needle, Leland. Uh, wouldn't the Muslim beliefs qualify as propaganda? Would what? 
Uh, I, it depends on how you present it and whether you allow other people to bring it in. I think if we're just having a discussion, it would not be propaganda. If, I mean, if I'm a Muslim and, and you're a Christian and we're just talking about our faith, that's not propaganda. That's dialogue. That's a good thing. You know, that's a good thing. It's just when you get into, um, if you were to get into Afghanistan and or even, you know, Egypt, you're not allowed to share the gospel, period. Okay, at that point in time, now you're moving into propaganda because they're not allowing any other idea to enter the discussion. Bless you. And so, again, if there's dialogue, that's a good thing. That's where we want to be because truth always wins. Truth always wins. And so in a dialogue, we can get to the truth. Uh, people who dialogue well, they listen as much as they talk. Their goal isn't just to be right. It's to learn and to help others learn the truth. When having conversations with others, we remember the tactics. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? At the end of the day, how we treat people more than whether our points are well argued wins them to the truth. It's important that we treat people well in our discussions. This is just a, a link to an article on uh, persuasion and effective evangelism. It's a, it's probably takes you 15 minutes to read the article. So it's a little long. I just, I just, I used it for some of this and, um, and it's worth reading. This is really good. It's from bethinking.org is where it comes from. It's a site that's over in the UK. I use them quite a bit. Um, and this was just an excellent piece. If you just want to Read some more on that. I would encourage you to pull that up and, and read that. And it's, it's, a, it's an excellent piece. Um, any closing comments, questions? Man, let me close this in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of truth. You speak truth, you are truth, and you call us to your truth. And so, Lord, we just bless you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through you, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you for this evening, Lord. We th pray that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit. You'd place upon us the spiritual armor of God as we go through the rest of this week. And, Lord, that we would, we would speak your truth and love. And, Lord, wherever we go, we would be the, the very fragrance of Jesus. And so we just bless you and praise you. And it's in your glorious name we ask these things. Amen.